My name is Andy. I help people live life on purpose. This podcast explores the mystery, beauty, and complexity of life through conversations with an array of incredible practitioners, all of them working at the edge of what's possible for humanity. This is a place for big dreams, bold creativity, and fierce hope. Welcome to the Wonder Dome. If you're inspired by this conversation and you'd like to see it reach more people, you can help the Wonder Dome take flight by sharing it with friends and colleagues, subscribing, giving us a high star rating, and best of all, leaving a glowing review. If you'd like to go even further, consider becoming a monthly supporter. You'll help me keep the lights on and support a wide range of charitable causes. You can learn more at mindfulcreative.coach. Thanks in advance for helping us inspire the world. My guest today is Michael J. Bobbitt. Michael is the executive director of the Mass Cultural Council, which is an organization here in Massachusetts working to elevate cultural life across the state with an emphasis on improving arts education, promoting diversity, and encouraging excellence in the arts, humanities, and sciences. Uh, Michael actually says in our conversation that he is moving even more actively away from language like diversity and equity and inclusion towards language like anti-oppression and anti-supremacy, which really resonates with me. And if that language is new to you, I invite you to come in with an artist's ear with uh, an openness and curiosity to what Michael is standing for, because this conversation beautifully, in my estimation, dances between a space where the show typically thrives, a space of vision and exploration and possibility, but also the sort of practical and pragmatic realities of what it might mean for us to create or create a new, a multicultural society in which we all benefit from the amazing, the amazing aspects of each other that are often oppressed or ignored or violently excluded. And that in the process, we might elevate the experience of every human being who currently lives on the planet. So it's a big, we dream big in this conversation, but we also explore what that means at the level of nonprofit organizations, the kind that through his work with the Mass Cultural Council, Michael currently supports and advocates for. And he can do that so skillfully uh, in large part because he is himself a remarkably accomplished artist. Uh, he has served as uh, the artistic director of the New Repertory Theater. He has directed uh, dozens of plays. He transferred two shows to Off-Broadway, built an academy, has earned dozens of awards and nom nominations, um, and has done so much work to elevate the experience of artists and especially young artists around the country and most recently here in Massachusetts. Uh, you can find his whole bio, which is too long for me to read here because he really has done some awesome stuff at massculturalcouncil.org mass about staff, Michael J. Bobbitt. But suffice to say that he is both an artist and an arts leader. And he is standing for a world in which people of all identities have a seat at the table when it comes to creating new futures. And also people of all identities who feel called into the artistry, the culture-making work of creating new futures can actually step in and do that. 
So this conversation really explores what might, what might be possible if we actually unleashed the full creative potential and stopped hiding from the systems of oppression that, that have been built over the decades and centuries and rather face them with, with compassion and love and help dissolve them to build something new. So this is a really fun one. We laughed, we got deep, we touched into some amazing possibilities for our collective human future. And I hope you enjoy it. So let's get settled in. <sighs> and hear what Michael has for us. Hi, Michael. Hey, Andy, how are you? I'm doing really well. Welcome to the Wonder Dome. Thanks for having me. This is really exciting. Yeah, I'm so uh, I'm so touched that you said yes to this invitation. You know, we haven't spent a lot of time together yet, but I had a chance. I've had a chance to kind of encounter you and the public the the public sphere, which these days is the Zoom sphere. Uh, the two kind of overlap, but I had a chance to hear you speak about your perspective on on what it is to be leading a non uh, an arts nonprofit and and what it is to take a stand for a more inclusive, expansive art, artistic community and how to engage funders and donors and people who care about the arts in this mission of, of arts culture that is more inclusive and expansive and, and diverse and multicultural. And I was just really psyched to hear that uh, the Mass Cultural Council had sort of, that you had said yes to their invitation to take the leadership helm and kind of bring your arts background and your leadership background into this. Just as a Massachusetts citizen, I was really excited to see that. So I'm, I'm happy to be here with you today and kind of explore what might come up. Yeah, these are all subjects I like to talk about and share with the world. I'm, it is a place that I have privilege. And so I, mm. I know that part of the world and part of the struggle of the world is finding ways to use the privilege for good and to see privilege to those that deserve to have a place that they haven't had before. So, you know, I know that I got here because of some opportunities. And so if there's ever a chance for me to share that, uh, the, what I've learned back out, I'm really happy to do that. Mm. Um, mm. And I think there are numerous perspectives that have guided some of the things that I have used and learned Certainly, I've learned through the traditional ways that we learn about nonprofits, but then some of those things go against how I feel as a Black man, how I feel as an artist. Um, and so I'm always challenging and, and thinking those, thinking about those things and how mm. we can mm. make them all more equitable and come at them with a different angle. So, mm. you know, I just say that to say that I'm, I'm here because you invited me. So thank you so much for inviting me and any opportunity I can to share there is a good opportunity. Oh, that's brilliant. I wonder if actually maybe we could look at, uh, I want, definitely want to hear more about your journey, but what you just said about, um, so I also have a background in nonprofit leadership, although it's been a few years. And um, what you said about kind of, on the one hand, being aware, I, what I heard was kind of on the one hand, being aware of how nonprofits operate and, and the potential they have to impact society for the better. But on the other hand, kind of this, first person felt sense as a black man and as an artist that that some of the stuff in the nonprofit world actually isn't uh serving in the ways that you that you hope that it could and that there's maybe some shifts in the in the sector that that we need to to unpack and name i wonder if you'd be willing to dig into that a little bit more with me yeah i mean um 
Yeah, there there are. I think there are numerous things about the nonprofit sector and the the rules and laws that govern nonprofits that need a relook and a, and reform in many ways. I think I think we all need to go back and look at the five hundred one c three and just just see if that's holding up to what the world is. I, oftentimes, law is not in step with society, right? Mm. Because law is so much based on precedent and what happened in the past, and yet it doesn't really reflect what's happening really right now. And so this 501c3 thing, I think, just needs a redo, relook. Um, mm. I, I mm. think there are many things about that that have given permission to groups of people to to act, do, and be in a certain way that I think just needs to be relooked at. I also think that um, the institution of boards of directors need, needs a redo as well, because I struggle. I mean, and I think that there are great boards out there and certainly the culture that is defined by the organization can define how the board and the staff operate. But those are in many ways outliers. Mm. The norm mm. is stress and, and, and difficulty um, I mean, how many, you, 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 again, you said you were a nonprofit leader. So how many classes did you take on how to manage a board? How many workshops, how many articles, how many forums where large populations of executive directors were spend most of the time complaining about their boards. So to me, an, inst an institution that takes up that much space to teach people how it should operate better yeah. is an institution that needs to be relooked at. Yeah. You know, I, I reflect now that I'm a bureaucrat working in government, we have a <laughs> we, we have a government appointed council. And, and I think on average, I spend maybe 15 weeks on 15 hours a week on them. I mean, not 15, sorry, 15 minutes a week on them. Mm. You know, my 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 managing them, planning meetings, um, connecting with them is really about 15 minutes, which means which is different than when you're running a nonprofit, which on average was about 10 weeks. 10 hours a week on managing my nonprofit boards. It just required so much wow. of me. And if you think about that, that's 10 hours a week. That's a whole week out of your month. Yeah. yeah. That's three whole months out of your year. Wow. For mm -hmm. a group of people that are volunteers and probably well-intentioned volunteers, but they don't really know what it takes to run the business. Mm. Mm. And they re and it's almost like having a staff of 10, 12, 15 people that don't know how to do their job, <laughs> right? <laughs> and so your job is to do the job for them, but yet they're your bosses. And so it just... Wow. I've never just, heard it quite put like such a fine point on it. And yeah, that is a massive amount of creative energy, resource, time that... Pretty, I, I'm sure you could probably think of a hundred other ways that that those three months of your year could be put to, to different use or more impactful use. Sure, I mean, one, if I wasn't spending three months out of my year managing this group, I could use that time to raise money. <laughs> <laughs> I could use that time to expand my audiences. I could use that time to do community engagement. There are many more efficient ways to do that, but that system is put in place, and those best practices, which aren't really part of the law have just become part of the zeitgeist of the nonprofit world. And they just continue to be perpetuated. Not to mention, I know we're probably going to talk a lot about racism, but when you, when you look at that system, typically 
there are rules decided by maybe the governance or the nominating committee to decide who gets to be on the board mm. and mm. what qualifies you to be on the board. So you really talk about holding certain ilks in place and certain supremacies in place. It, yeah. It's just a system that I just think needs to be redesigned. And I, you know, I, I charge every single innovation, innovative lab, innovation lab, every single school that's teaching nonprofit um, arts management to just use the minds in those spaces to redesign and and come up with new best practices because what's what's happening right now is just not working. Mm. Um, mm. So, you know, I've been I've been on my soapbox about that, and uh, but it's time. It's really well. Time that's to part re- part of what got things. me excited to reach out to you because although that you know we're already for folks who don't have a nonprofit background, we might be a bit in the like weeds right now. But I want to like anchor in. And maybe we can explore this together. There's there's a, a felt sense I have of what might be possible if we actually successfully, as a society or even as a state, innovated on this question of how nonprofits uh, let's let's we can stay in the art space, but this is true really for any nonprofit. How nonprofits in the art space could totally reorient in service of a enriching cultures, bringing more folks to the table. Like there's actually quite a beautiful future I sense out there. If we actually really slow down and went, why are we doing it like this? Right. Exactly. (laughs) No. And I, you know, and to your, um, your first question, which I didn't, don't think I really asked is that, that as a, as a black man running nonprofits and running arts organizations, um, what, what were those sort of like weird, um, like, like, here's what I know and feel as a black man, but here's what I'm being asked to do as, mm. a, as a leader, how those sort of like stay in conflict with each other. But everything from like, um, you know, organizations say we want to diversify, but yet there's the boards are all white and the staffs are all white. Um, yeah. We can attract more people of color if we just do discount tickets. Mm. Right. Or if we put mm. in a community engagement program, as opposed to thinking that this is a cultural thing and that the the things that are in place, the, the business, the very business model that were, was designed for us is what is contributing to the lack of engagement by people of color. Um, where, you know, I, one of the things I've been talking about is, is subscription series that many arts organizations use. I think it's a racist model. You know, if you think about the number, the number of who, what group of people has the money to buy a year's worth of tickets six months in advance? Mm. And then what privileges are we giving them just for having money? Mm. Right. They get to buy Mm. the best seats in the house and typically to incentivize them, we're giving them discounts, which means we're giving people that can afford to pay full price discounts for the best seats. Wow. And oftentimes when they come, we stand in front of them and we say, you're our favorite patrons. We love you more than we love our other patrons. So stand mm. so we can recognize you, right? But all those things put in, are put in place. And then beyond that, right, just think about the day-to-day operations, the financial models. You know, boards ask you to develop your budget a year and a half in advance. Wow. Like I'm supposed to be able to predict how a show is going to do in a year and a half. <laughs> Which right. this this past year and a half has really put a fine point on 
how unpredictable things can be a year and a half from today, right. right? Right, right. I mean, the idea of annual budgeting should seem ridiculous to anyone at this point. Yeah. <laughs> We've all been surviving off of doing three-month budgeting budgets and then pivoting. That should be the new norm. Mm. Um, but those mm. are the kind of things, you know, um, um, even in, in terms of HR, how HR really should be able, should be about getting people to feel really great and do their best at work, but really it becomes about gatekeeping. And so how do we, how, how are we redesigning all of those things? I've, you know, I was even challenged with the notion of, uh, retirement, uh, um, matching for retirement. So typically it's, we'll give you 5% of your salary, right? Mm. But that means the people that are making more get more mm. retirement. Mm. What if what if it's five percent of all the salaries combined and then equally shared? Mm. Mm. You know, so those are the kind of things that you know, as a black man, I think about, um, and even as an artist, because I think that one of the things about artists that I love and I'm obsessed about is that we are experts at imagining what the yes. world can be, can yes. be how the world can be different, and I. You know, I'm aware from futurists and economists and so, social scientists that that we're in the midst of the creative age. Mm. Where right brain creatives are 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 at the should be at the top of the food chain because all the world's problems will be solved through creativity, and there's no one else that's better at that than artists. Mm. So, how can mm. we help mm. with climate mm. change? How can we help with the housing crisis? How can we help with the political unrest? How can we help with racial equity? Yeah. But so, so, so there's the, what I learned in nonprofit classes <laughs> yeah. and then how I feel about those things as a black man, but that has different tools to pull on from, from my culture. And then all the things I'm imbued with as an artist, all the ability to imagine, imagine different ways. Um, they all sort of come together um, and they cause disruption, but I also think they cause um, a lot of people to think about new ways of, of doing things. Yeah. I love that you sit at the intersection of those three identities and places that I'm, I'm sort of, there's kind of coming in from, from right field for me right now. There's a, there is a corporate leader uh, based in Seattle of a company called gravity payments, who six years ago just said, we're going to, Baseline salary for every employee is $70,000. Some, some employees are being paid $25,000, dollars $35,000. So some employees doubled or more of their salary in one year overnight. And, you know, people were, people were uh, certain people were freaking out and, about this in a negative way. This guy's crazy. He's a communist. This, I can't wait to see uh, his, his company as a failed case study in business school classes and and now, six years later, despite the pandemic, the company's thriving, thriving. and uh, thriving. And uh, he seems happier than any leader I've ever met, just have, like from way afar. I haven't actually talked to him. And his employees seem ha as happy as any employees I've ever met. And there's this just bold, creative act to say, you know, we don't have to do it this way just because we've always done it this way. Yep. You know, we just don't. Yep. And I know you think I'm crazy, but I, within this locus of control, I can do, I can make this choice and I'm gonna, Yep. and it worked. <laughs> it worked. And, and when you value people, it, the, there's a huge return on investment. I remember having some battles with boards when I prioritized the people, 
Mm. Mm. And, and the culture was about taking care of the people. So there was, so work-life balance was a huge thing. So we went back, went back through all of our documents, all of our sort of HR documents and made sure the work-life balance was present. So we added things like unlimited vacation for which people said, that's never going to work. It worked beautifully. <laughs> Liberal teleworking policy, like with this computer and phones, I don't need you in the room to know that you're working. Um, like a moonlighting policy, because certainly as an arts organization, I'm not paying people nearly what they deserve. Mm, so mm, mm. if you have unlimited vacation, you can take another gig to make your life better until I can pay you better, go for it. Mm. But retirement with matches and, and HSA in case the health insurance policy I offer you isn't paying for everything. Here's like a smaller account where you can like pay the rest. But 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 prioritizing those things made the company better and more income came in and people felt better about working for the company. I didn't have the kind of turnover that um, that you normally see. But those things are considered like out there when truthfully what you should do when you come up with your salaries for your employees is look at what the cost of living is and then base your salaries on that. Like mm-hmm. everyone should have the right to have a house and have mm-hmm. food and be able to pay for their kids' education. So base your salaries on that. That, I mean, to me, that should be, I mean, call me a communist, but don't call me a communist. <laughs> but, <laughs> well, but I want to call I mean, you an artist. What, that, I want to call you what, like kind of a civic artist, right? Like there's this, this way in which these questions have sadly, like everything been so highly politicized, but but what I hear you speaking to is, are there many creative ways you can think about where our business mission or nonprofit mission intersects with the lifeblood of that mission, which are the people who are going to deliver on it? Yeah. And, and that requires a total rethink, sadly, uh, based on our kind of some of the dominant cultural norms. It requires this total rethink around what do we mean when we say employment? What do we mean when we say bottom line, what do we mean when we say fundraising, right? Like resources, all of these sort of words that have just kind of become so common that we don't even realize that we can stop to interrogate them and say, is there a different way to do this? Sure. I mean, I think about, because it really does require creativity, right? Yeah. And someone has to have, someone has to have the idea creativity. And, and I think that ideology is a form of creativity, right? Yeah. Um, but, but oh, so is oppression. Mm. Oppression, oppression mm. is highly creative. Mm. Laws that oppress one group of people over another group of people require some creativity. Yeah. I mean, think about some of the laws that we're dealing with now in our society, voter suppression, abortion, all those things. That is some creative thinking mm. of mm. some very creative people. Mm. Mm. So that's what we need to combat that. We need ideas and ideas come from creativity, which again, sort of going back to the arts is why we have to support artists and arts. And, and really, instead of, um, you know, when we look at our the statues in the parks, they should be of artists, not war heroes. The street names should be of artists, mm-hmm. not, you know, mm-hmm. let's put mm-hmm. them at, let's put them at the top. Yeah. Let's play with that. Thanks. By the way, I, I've, to name the creative energy that, that sort of it's, it's almost like I'm having this moment of, yeah, we are creative. That is one of our birthrights as a species is our ability to create things and stories and ideas and, turn them into culture. 
And oppression is in its own way, a powerfully creative act that if we just take it face value and go, oh, well, this is what reality is. We're actually submitting to that creative act completely. But if there's in fact a realization that someone at some point just said, oh, if we do it this way, this will happen. Yeah. Imagination is seeing the world different, differently. Creativity is bringing the imagination to life. So if you decide you don't want certain people to vote, you have to imagine a place where those people don't have the right to vote and then creatively come up with the idea for how to suppress their votes. So, yeah. So, so then on the other side, you're imagining a world where the statues in the parks are artists, not war heroes and the street names are, are artists. And, and there is a, recognition woven into our shared cultural fabric that artistry is perhaps the ground upon which any other piece of society gets built or could be built. Maybe we could play more with that imaginal space. I'd love to hear you say more about like when you, as, as the leader of the mass cultural council, as an artist, like in whatever stance you want to take in this moment, when you begin to imagine what might be possible, if we really start to reorient towards a culture that embraced artistry, what, what becomes possible for you? Yeah. And some of this comes from thinkers like Daniel Pink and Richard Florida, who have named this age that we're at the dawn of like the creative age or the conceptual age where they looked at, they looked at the status, status, um, the statistics and the data, and they'd see, this is not even statistics. It's fact that, um, the creative sector is one of the largest sectors in this country, you know, 38 million jobs from the creative sector representing 30% of the GDP. And you know, I think the last time I saw it was $919 billion, which is larger than, larger than agriculture, construction, and I think education um, contributing to how this, this country makes money Um and that going back to like looking who was at the forefront of society, who were the who were the people that were making society evolve, you know, back during the agricultural age, it was the farmers. During the industrial age, it was the factory workers. During the um, information age, it was the people that were providing that kind of content. And so during the conceptual and creative age, which is to say that our problems can be solved through creativity, Mm. it is the artists and the creators that are going to be helping to advance the world, science and technology advance because of creativity. Mm -hmm. And so to me, that means we need to double down, like a just basic business term, double down on on the assets that we have and make sure artists are treat it well because they're the ones who are going to solve the problems mm. in the next 50 mm. years. Um, and I got that, I get that idea of like statues and street names from um, I'm obsessed with, with self-care. And so I came upon this, this, um, this thing called blue zones that are like these places on this planet where like a large population of people live beyond the age of a hundred into like age 120, 140. And, and scientists have figured out why they're called, why, why this happens. And there's beautiful phenomena. But I think I've read that Costa Rica is the second happiest place on earth. 
And they intentionally don't put war heroes in their statues because they don't want to celebrate violence. Their statues are scholars and artists and poets and such to say, hey, this is where we this is what we want to celebrate. So what happens if we do that? Who knows? Yeah. Mm. What are some of the other blue zones? <laughs> and, <laughs> I don't where, why. And, and can we, can we get them here and have them teach, you know, like, wow, that's, I didn't, I wasn't aware. Yeah, it's, it's bizarre. When you read up on it, you hear that pe- that men are siring baby up babies up until their eighties and nineties. And people are working full-time jobs that there's no disease like heart disease and, um, you know, Alzheimer's and, and, um, Wow. Uh, what's the thing when your when your fingers and your joints really arthritis. are in pain? Arthritis. None of that happens. And that when people pass, they just literally pass because they've reached their age. But people wow. aren't dying of cancer. They just they just go. They're living healthy lives. And so they they have figured out what are the commonalities. And so some of those things are like they eat mostly plant-based. They are they're moving often. They're not like going to the gym and exercising, but they're, they leave active lives. They have time when they downsize, which is like to meditate or to nap during a day. And, uh, and those are contributing to the world. They drink red wine. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <but they're>, nice. <laughs> right. I think we have one place in America. I think it's a seventh day Adventist community in California, but, but Sardinia, Italy and Okinawa, Japan, there's a place in Costa Rica, but there are mm. like nine blue zones on the planet. And, uh, and I plan to, I plan to surpass all of them. <laughs> yeah. I want to live until racism is over. So, uh, so at least 150. Wow. Wow. And I love just by the way, the name, there was a part of me that was like, Oh shit, is racism ever going to be over. And I just love that, that, uh, that a part of you is standing for, yeah, that could happen in, in, in my lifetime. If I live to 150, that, that could actually happen. Like it that's, happen. You have yeah. to have hope. You have to have hope. I, I think about, well, I, you know, in many ways, oppression will only disappear when people are willing, people that hold power are willing to cede privilege, mm-hmm. right? And mm-hmm. ceding, ceding privilege mm-hmm. is really hard. Like it's not, it goes against our nature. Our nature is to like hunt and gather and, and hide and hoard, right? Um, but Seeding privilege is is what it will take. It, it really is going to take people to say, it's not my turn right now, or let me use my privilege to help people that need it. And we have precedent, you know, women's right to vote came from men seeding privilege. Right. Right. Um, the uh, uh, LGBTQ plus people being able to marry came from heteronormative people ceding privilege. Mm. Um, one could even say the civil rights and the end of slavery came from some people ceding privilege. But that's the thing I hold on to. I hold on to hope because to me, without hope, you sort of seal the deal. Like if you don't hope that things, things will change, then you've put a nail in the coffin. Yeah. Um, and I think about slavery, like that institution, that that institution, which was the largest money maker in the world, in the world, Ooh, ended, yeah. ended, and so we can end this system and structure and institution that is giving preference to one group of people over another. That can end. It requires creativity. It requires perseverance. And you know, part of me is dreaming that you know the, the hundred year mark, the hundred years from the end of slavery to the civil rights. Um, mm-hmm. law and then 
another hundred years. Mm. Maybe we see the end of racism, but that's, you know, that's, that's impending that's coming in 42 years. So, but the world is moving much faster now. And so it's possible that we can, we can actually get there, but it's going to take a lot of work. Mm. Mm. Beautiful. Thank you for just kind of evoking that possibility and that vision here in this space. I'm really touched uh, and, you know, I shared with you, and I don't always surface this explicitly with all of my guests, but I shared with you that kind of one of the origin questions of this show is around hope, but fierce hope, like, and I, and I experience, and fierce doesn't have to mean like angry or warrior, although it can, um, but it rather just like, I'm willing to stand even when everyone around me is saying no or saying it's not possible or saying, you know, you're crazy or you're the enemy. Right. And that, that's like that kind of fierceness that you're embodying in this really beautiful way right now that I just want to underline and mirror back to you and say, thank you for. Yeah. How did you, again, you just nail, put the nail in the coffin. Like you have decided this is the way it is. It will never change. And that is not possible. And I, and, and I will also say that I think, you know, this, you know, one of the, things we always hear is that people don't like to change or people can't change or people fear change. It is not change that people fear. We change all the time. We get our new iPhone or some new iOS update and we're like mad for a day. And then the next day, we don't even remember what our old iPhone looked like. <laughs> so it's, it's not change. It's just loss. It's the yeah. loss of power and privilege that people feel. And I think that loss of power and privilege for many that have had it will feel like the seven stages of grief. You can Mm. see it on TV. You can see it Mm. on TV when, when something, when people feel like something is being taken away from them or, or even the threat or the idea that something will be taken away from, they get enraged. Yeah. And I, and I believe that when oppression exists, no one is truly free because we're here talking about it. We've gone to workshops and masterclasses and we're reading all these documents because we are not free from it. Mm. And when it's gone, when people see everyone as people that deserve the same rights and privileges, then we, we will, we will all benefit from this. Yeah. This utopia. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's the thing that, uh, that really strikes me is there's the perceived loss versus the actual loss. And those two can be wildly divergent. Like maybe I'll lose the moment in the theater where the nonprofit leadership has stand up and we're going to clap for you because you're our favorite patrons because I've seated the privilege and now everyone gets equal access to all of the seats in the theater. Right. So, so there is maybe an actual loss that I'm not, I don't get guaranteed front row every time. Right. But, but the perceived loss can often be, be quite a lot more intense, this sense of, of, you know, well, I've given you my money and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a respected member of the society. And, and they're sort of like, you know, oh, and now you're attacking me because I'm white. And there's just, it just sort of like can spiral very quickly into this defensive posture Yep, uh, that is really hard to work with. But, but uh, speaking, of, I'll just simply speak for myself here, like what I've, when I think about the world, I want my daughter and son to grow up, but it's a world where that uh, the idea of having to even be in that defensive crouch doesn't even make sense to them because we just kind of, some people imagined 
oh, if we think about whiteness in this way, we'll have more power. And so they Mm -hmm. made it up. Mm -hmm. Right. And so this sort of realization that actually there's, if you already have a fair amount of privilege, much of what you're giving up, at least this is my opinion right now, is not actually that much in the benefits like to be able to walk into a space with people of all these different identities and just be together. Just be together. Oh, like I want, like, I want that. I don't want to like that. So that's just the benefit to me uh, feels so potent. And I just yeah. like w- wonder how we can, as part of our creative work, honor that there is a perceived loss, help people come to terms with the actual loss that might be significantly less than the perceived loss, at least in some cases. And then, start to touch into the like, and here on the other side, you're still like, we're not saying get out of here. We're saying come in here in a different way that also lets me come in here and, and, and her come in here and them come in here. And it's just, it just feels so much more exciting. Like that's the world I want my kids to grow up in. Yeah. I mean, I remember when we were talking about the subscriptions, because I not only did I want to come up with a more equitable patron loyalty program, I also wanted to do general admission seating Mm. because Everyone should have the chance to sit up front. Like everyone mm. should have the chance. Mm. And so, but that it's was awesome to be up front in a like, right. Performance. It's just the best, right? Like well, you want to. Yeah. But you're not losing much if you don't get to get up front, right? You yeah. still are witnessing that, that experience. But the, the idea that I was taking something away from people that had 20 years of sitting in seat F1 was <laughs> like, was, was visceral for them. And I, mm. You know, and, and then, and then, so what happens, what, uh, what happened was there was all these ideas thrown on top of how chaotic it would be. It's going to be chaos and people are going to fight. And I was like, no, they won't. Did, did, <laughs> did, did you, did you fight at church or synagogue last week? Did you fight on the bus or on the train? Did you fight at the restaurant? When mm-hmm. the seat's available, you take that seat. You know, there's, we live in a society where first come first serve is, is, is a pretty, um, pretty normal occurrence. If there's a free show in the park and we all go, whoever gets there early, they get <laughs> sit, sit. So it's yeah. not something we're yeah. not used to, but again, that the, the vilification of the idea that I was taking something away from people. And then also people adjust, like, like if that option is not there, people will adjust yeah. their thinking and they'll, and they'll be, they'll be good with it. Um, the other thing I I do to tell people that how people are going to, how we all would benefit is I use sort of food as an example. Like what if we had a world where there was only one kind of food, only <laughs> one kind of food, we didn't yeah. allow anyone else's food to be part of the, the culture. You know, the benefits that we have by, by having everyone's food. I mean, like a world without tacos and sushi and samosas and cornbread and barbecue. My heart's already breaking. You know what I mean? You (laughs) know what I mean? But that, that's what I mean that when, when oppression goes away and we have examples in society, like in food, not, not food, um, uh, uh, people that don't have food, but people that, that have food, there's options. Yeah. And I think that it makes for the, it makes the world a better place. Mm. Even fa- fashion and pop culture all benefit from yeah. diversity. Yeah. So. Oh, that's awesome. Really. And the thought of a world without sushi and tacos and, and my, my mother-in-law's makes the best lasagna. Like she's from Sicily. Like, yeah, just so so simple and elegant to point to that 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 beauty of having we don't want to we don't want to pave over 
anything and make it all one thing. It's that impulse to try and make it all one thing that leads to oppression. And that oppress that oppression is so brutal on everyone, including the oppressor. Yep. Maybe in some ways, well, I want to be careful here, but just want to acknowledge that there's a unique way that the oppressor is harmed by oppression that, sure. that is really tragic. And, sure. uh, you know, so, that, so I hear you kind of saying like, Hey, we we can invite, we can invite everyone to the table. It's going to require some trade-offs, but look at what might be possible if we do this successfully. And it sounds I, like the, the subscription thing started working. Is that right? Well, like, yeah. I mean, I left the theater before we could execute, so I hope uh, they're still working on it. But um, but I'm, I've said it enough that I'm hoping someone else out there has taken it and, yeah. gone, and gone with it. But I, um, I, I to your point about um, the oppressor, uh, I think it takes a lot of work and a lot of will to ignore privilege. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. And that's what I mean by you're not free. You're not free because you are aware it's right there. You can't not see it, but if you choose not to acknowledge it, that's a significant amount of work and mm. you won't be free from it. So, mm. Mm. um, mm. I wonder if we could like almost run the math in the same way you did with board engagement, right? Like there's this probably this way in which uh, people in positions of privilege who are, who are, are, although they might not be conscious of it, are working so hard not to see it that a certain amount of their psychic energy and creativity and their, their natural essence is being repressed in the process sure. day in, day out, day after day, year after year. And if we could help somehow sort of, gently and lovingly and compassionately help them see that if they had access to all that energy, they were no longer using it in service of trying to hide from something that they, that, that imagine all that, that would open up too in terms of energy and possibility. I also think there's, there's, there's trauma in the eyes being opened Mm. that I think is probably undiagnosed. I can't imagine if you've lived one way all your life and been told one thing all your life to learn now that all of that was based in supremacy and lies, mm. the kind of trauma that would, I mean, mm. I, I can, I can see myself spinning through all the teachers that I had mm. who, who taught me things like Jackie Robinson was so exceptional that he broke the color barrier. He was like the best of the black men who played baseball, that he was so good. He broke the color barrier. And we know from his stats, he was mediocre at best, a good ball player, but mediocre. There were so many other ball player that ball players that had better stats. No, the truth is he was the first allowed by white men to play in the major leagues. That's a whole different narrative. Mm. And that can be shocking to know that it was decided to change the narrative, to make one race look better than the other. Mm. 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 Wow. And, so to know, and to know that like an educational system, 93% of the teachers in this country are white women who were taught by 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 white women, <laughs> taught by white women teaching texts taught by white men, written by white men. To know that that text was written from their perspective, from the winner's perspective, mm. right? To know that all of that, like the, there's a different narrative out there. I mean, it's, 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 I think it's, I think it's traumatic for anyone who is, you know, my age right now to sort of un, unlearn all that stuff. Yeah. Thank you for naming that. That really feels 
deeply compassionate and insightful to the way in which uh, a reality created in the past by people who are in the position of power and privilege to, to write the story of that reality becomes so kind of baked into identities that, that to encounter something that counters that narrative can in fact be traumatic. That, that seems really, yeah, that lands with me and makes a lot of what we're talking about. Like, it's easy to be like, Hey, just open your eyes. But like, to just be like, well, remember that opening could be quite traumatic is appreciate you saying that. Yeah. I try to, I try to do this, this work with compassion because, you know, even as a black man who has privilege as a light-skinned black man mm. who has privilege as a leader and who was taught sort of the white way to do things, I have a lot to unlearn. And I also think that part of my part of my job and maybe a part of a lot of people of color's job when it comes to racial equity is to to learn about their contributions to it, to learn about things like racialized trauma and radical self-care colorism, internalized oppression. Um, those are the things that we need to work on to understand sort of either how we have contributed to it, how we haven't fought it and how we can be healthy during these conversations. Cause they're going to be difficult conversations. And so how do we do it without losing it, <laughs> yeah. without losing it and, and actually still can, and I don't, and, and you know, I think the belief system is, is rock solid and takes 10 to 15 years to change someone's belief system, but how can we express what we are doing and not have it hurt us more. Yeah. That is such a delicate and challenging balance to strike. I can imagine that, that the way in which someone who is undergoing their, a change in their belief system, like I'll just use myself as an example my first exposure to these ideas was in 2002. And, and so it's been about 20 years and I still just, uh, within the past year of facilitating a workshop and I used a phrase, something like uh, dominant or mainstream culture. And one of the participants, a participant of color was like, yo, like, I don't, I don't want to be, it's not mainstream. I don't even want that. Like, you don't need to include me. <laughs> you know, I was like, oh, you know, and it was like a really humbling moment of recognizing, like, I just want to be able to be a person and I have culture and I have connection. And, you know, like just, just like that was such a powerful moment for me to remember that even still there is this unfolding journey for all of us to figure out how do we talk about this in a way that's not violent to each other? Uh, how do we, how do we create spaces where, where people with white bodies can do this work for each other safely and with compassion and not put that burden on people with, with bodies of color. And then also I hear you're really speaking to like, how do you as a leader help, help communities that have, have internalized so much of this trauma, just realize they can take care of themselves and that they don't always have to be the ones who have to point out yet again, <laughs> the power imbalances and that like, it's like. Oof, so there's a lot of work here and I appreciate your 150 year timeline a lot more in this moment as, as we, as you do. Yeah. yeah. It's like, once you peel up, peel a one piece of the onion away, there's like so many more layers underneath it. And all of that just, um, it requires compassion. It requires, um, relentlessness and compassion at the same time. Like we can't, we can't let up Yeah, because I just think that the, 
you know, tearing down the house of racism brick by brick will take a long time, but we mm. also have to build another house that is an anti-racist house. And I, you know, part of me is trying to, to, to stop using words like diversity, equity, inclusion, because I think they are, you know, especially the word, like you mentioned, inclusion means that here's this thing that I have. And now because of whatever guilt I have, I'm going to include you into this thing that I have. It's not really for you, but I'm going to forcefully include you. And so to me, I like to replace those words with anti-oppression, anti-white supremacy, and anti-racism. Mm. Mm. Because, because that is really what we're talking about. And, and it's funny, even like 15 months ago, saying things like white supremacy and anti-racism was like, ah, but now it's everywhere. Like everyone's saying it, which is good, which is kind of where we want to get. And so people, you know, yeah. anyway, we can talk about it for hours. Yes, we can. I think we have about uh, 10 minutes left and I'm, and I'm kind of just tuning in. There's a, a whole thread that we didn't really get to touch into and maybe we could go there. This would be a bit of a reverse order, but you have personally been on this journey, as I understand it, as, as an artist, as a playwright, as a teacher, and, uh, and also as a leader, sort of before, before stepping into your current role with Mass Cultural Council. And yeah, I just, I would love to hear more about, like, as you reflect on your own journey through, through the world as an artist, as a Black man, like, what has that journey been like for you? And what are you hoping is possible for other young people who might be looking to you for some inspiration or some sense of different models for how to lead and how to be in the arts world or in the nonprofit world? Sure. I'm going to get to it, the answer, but through a, like a little way. To Take whatever way you want to roll here. Yeah. <laughs> so if I don't answer, just remind me. Um, I was just writing an article this morning, um, but, you know, I grew up a poor, poor black child, VC public schools from the hood with parents that struggled and wouldn't have the resources. And, um, and the only time I saw people that lived really well and with lots of privileges was on TV. And then when I went to high school, I was recruited to go to a all boy Jesuit college prep high school, which was mostly white. And, significant wealth in that school. And then I saw it like firsthand, like my mm. best friends had a tremendous amount of money. And I remember not fully understanding why some had and some did not. And my anger about that was, was towards my family. Ooh. I thought it was because of them. I thought mm. they weren't doing something right. And so, um, so that was something I, I think I only really kind of un fully understood in, in, in my, in my early forties, actually, um, that, that sort of thing. But the thing that helped me to get through all of that was the arts mm. to go to play practice and music class and art class and band class where I don't think I even could articulate it, but it was a way to just kind of escape into something that I was good at, something that I enjoyed, something I woke up thinking about. Mm -hmm. um, and I remember like watching movie musicals on TV and just like Oklahoma, My Fair Lady, Carousel, Grease, The Wizard of Oz. These were like, oh my God, I'm living it. But not fully realizing that it was all white people. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. when I said to my family, 
I want to do that. I want to be in movie musicals and be on Broadway. They were like, are you out of your mind? Mm. There's, there's no, they're not going to hire you. And even like when the whiz came out, mm. which was like, yes, black people are in musicals. It was filled with stars and the people that were in the ensemble, surely they had some other inside connection to get that gig. It wasn't the norm. And so like, if you're a parent, you have a kid that is into this thing. How do you one find a way to support them given the reality and then protect their hearts from the disappointment? So the arts in many ways aren't some things that are spoken about at the dinner table for lots of kids, lots of little Michael Bobbitts out there. And so, but that's because of the system that we have designed, right? Mm. It was designed to give privilege to people that look one way and not the other. But the truth is that meant you were missing out on all the skills that little Michael Bobbitts and other little brown people in this country have mm. that could contribute to it. And I always tell people now that if you are predominantly white, predominantly white institution, you have to acknowledge that it was designed to mm. be that way. Mm. And I'm not suggesting it was done out of some design out of some ill intention some probably were, but most were not. Um, but it certainly bias and preference and and lack of perspective had something to do with the design of the business model because the business model was clearly designed by white people for white people. And so it stands to reason that if you really want to be a multicultural institution, you have to redesign the business model. And it has to be redesigned with multicultural people for multicultural people. And when that happens, the number of people that are going to now come to your organization is tremendous. You know, one of the things that makes people of color, people of color is, is how culture is infused in, is how arts are infused into our culture. Mm. You know, like it's in the fashion, it's in the food, it's in the language, it's in the ritual. And so it's just a part of culture. Mm. It's not this thing on the side. Mm. And so when you, when you redesign your business model, your doors are going to open to thousands and thousands of other people, which could help stabilize the financials mm. of your organization. It could help you have more perspective on your boards and in your staff so you can keep expanding on that. There's so many benefits to becoming multicultural. And so I think what I want to say to, to young people is that tell us what you want the world to look like in the future. Don't let us teach you all the things that we learned because clearly it's not working. Mm. I tell my 20 year old all the time, you know, we were like, we're going to make the world a better place. And we may have made it worse. <laughs> like <laughs> it feels like right now, it feels like, <laughs> old, it feels like OG old Testament God is smiting us. And I fully expect a swarm of locusts to like <laughs> take over the world tomorrow, but, but we may have made it worse. And so like, and it's your planet. Like when we're gone, you're going to be the ones who are leading. So you decide now what you want the world to look like. And if you're a creative, use the skills that you have inherently in your body to design what that looks like. And then force your schools, force your organizations to like mm. make, that, make that version happen because mm. It, mm. It, and it's going to require, it's going to require speaking up 
It's going to require showing up at the public square and voting and using your the, the privileges that you, that you have as an American citizen. Um, and it's going to require your innovation to redesign this whole thing. So be bold, be brave, and and know that it can happen, but only only with with perseverance, relentlessness, and hope. Mm, mm, mm. Michael, thank you. I to the extent that I'm able, I feel really inspired to to help send that message to young people and to encourage and support them as they stand for the fact that that they, with their imaginations, could help all of us create a, a new future. And that's really like we are just sitting as a collective species, we are sitting on so much creative energy that could be used in service of that vision you just described. And and I really appreciate you standing for it. Yeah, sure. I mean, most of what I learned about being a leader and in the arts, I learned in the late 1900s, which was a long time ago. And most of it is not relevant to what, how the world is functioning now. I mean, when you think about it like that, that's, that's, that's the truth. That was so, a creative act right there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, I, it's, yeah. And like I, the sepia toned photographs and the, you know, the, yeah. the extra baggy pants. Yeah. I, I remember that time. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And that stuff that they, that I learned back then was defined 40 years prior to that. So yeah. like, it's just not relevant. And so I, I just, you know, I think the last, the, the main thing I say to kids is sort of what side of history do you want to be on in 50 years when people are telling the story about what life was like when mm. you were a kid. Mm. Yeah. So, when they're like in the early 2000s and the mid 2000s, right? Someone's going to be telling that story. Yeah. Beautiful. Uh, Michael, if people want to learn more about uh, you and or your work with the Cult- Mass Cultural Council, where should where's the best place for them to head? Well, they can go to massculturalcouncil.org. They can also go to my own website, which is michaelbobbitt.com. I also love social media, so I'm always on Instagram at Michael James Bobbitt. That's B-O-B-B-I-T-T. Uh, and then people can reach out to me. I'm, I'm here, and, and part of my life's goal is to support any advancement in the arts world, but also in the racial equity world. And so people can reach out and and ask me whatever they need to ask. Beautiful. Beautiful. Thanks for all that you're doing for, for arts and culture here in Massachusetts and beyond. And, and, uh, want to thanks. Thank you again for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Can't wait to visit you in Western Mass soon. Yeah. Yeah. Come out anytime. We'll go check out some of the art that's hidden in the woods. I'd love to show you around. Love that. Okay, cool. Thanks, everyone, for listening in, and uh, we'll see you soon. Thanks for tuning in to The Wonder Dome. This podcast was produced by me, Andy Cahill, with support from Kelly Serqua, and audio editing services from John Nolan at Middle Mountain Studios. The theme song was written and performed by Todd Marston. You can find The Wonder Dome wherever pods are casted. If you dig what we're doing here, please share widely, subscribe, and give us some love in the review boards. And if you feel called to support this humble offering to the world, while also making an even greater impact in the lives of others, consider becoming a monthly supporter. Not only will you help me keep the lights on and keep this show going for as long as I'm able, but 30% of all member contributions go directly in support of causes like the Black Lives Matter movement, the United Nations Refugee Agency, and the National Resources Defense Council. You can find out more at my website, mindfulcreative.coach. 
where you can also sign up for my newsletter, learn about my transformational coaching work, and get plugged into exclusive offers and community happenings. In the meantime, I'm wishing you a life of purpose, power, and presence. We need you now more than ever.